0: Don't know the answer? Ask the Naked Scientists.
1: Hello and welcome to this week's Ask the Naked Scientists with me, Sue Marchant, and Dave Ansel. What's new in the world of science?
2: Well it's a story about detecting explosives. Now the traditional way of doing this is with really cute dogs. Yep. Yeah, so things like springer spaniels, really excited you tr- spend years and years training them up to associate the smell of explosives with food and they get really good at it and I mean dogs' noses are incredibly sensitive things. Yeah. The problem is of course it's really expensive to do this and and it's dangerous for the dogs too quite dangerous for the dogs and they can get distracted by food and all sorts of other things so um, people have been trying to make artificial noses for a long time. Artificial noses. Artificial noses. Right. Um, They've already got explosive detectors, which you you probably might have seen in the airport recently. They sometimes swab some of your clothing and put them in a special machine. These Mm. are kind of great big machines and they tend to work by separating out different molecules in the gases evaporating off your clothing. And if they detect any of them are explosives and they sort of apply an electric field to them and different molecules move at different speeds. And if any of them go to the right speed for explosives, then they'll sign up that you might be dangerous. But these are quite big and not very convenient. They take quite a long time to take measurements so people been trying to make artificial noses because noses are really quick and a group in Israel uh, they've got to about as good as a dog's nose so far but um, a group in Israel has just come up with one which is about a thousand times better than a dog's nose wow they've made little tiny wires out of silicon on a chip And they've covered them with a chemical, amine type chemical with little receptors on it, which um, grab a particular type of explosive molecule. And then, so if any molecules come across, they come off and grab onto this um, wire. That affects its conductivity, and so you can detect that with some electronics, and it gives a result within seconds. At the moment, it will detect, a dog can do about one part in a billion, so one molecule of scent in a billion molecules of air. They reckon this can do one part in a trillion not quite so good with air but it, if you if you can get the molecules inside a liquid then it will detect one part in a trillion which is really really impressive mm. so they're attempting to build they uh, haven't got a, a kind of actual device you can buy off the shelf yet but they're attempting to sort of combine it with some little fluids devices so it will kind of pump air through some water then pump it past their sensors and hopefully it will find the explosives really quite efficiently Artificial noses, whatever next.
1: Anyway, let's get on to our first questions. Um, Mike in Colchester has says that he gets the most amazing pictures on his television from space, which got him thinking, how much power do the satellites have to generate to give me these amazing
2: pictures and where do they get the power from? They basically... Satellites, there's no power stations, you can't plug them into the wall. So they have to get the power in a way which is something which is coming past you. And what they use is sunlight. They've basically got solar panels on them. The amount of power which they use in total is really quite limited because there's a limit I mean there's a limit to how big a solar panels they can put up there and the solar panels can only pick up there's about a kilowatt of light hitting every square metre mm. solar panels maybe 10-20% efficient mm-hmm. so it's only you're probably only getting about 100 watts maybe 200 if you use very, very, very expensive solar cells per square metre and the a limit to the amount of solar panels they use so the amount of power they're using is around about one, two, three, possibly for a big one 4 or 5 kilowatts so 2 or 3 kettles that can spread out over the whole of Europe is really not very much power. But that's the reason why you've got to use quite a big dish, so very, very directional, aerial, and very, very good electronics to pick up this signal. So you can get good pictures, even from this minute signal from a satellite, about 36,000 miles away in space. Gosh.
1: To the email now, Michael has sent one in, saying that... um, I can't pronounce your other name, Michael. I think it's Summerski. Uh, What happens to the speed of light, Dr Dave, when it passes into and out of glass?
2: Well, basically, light is a wave, an electromagnetic wave. And in, in space, it's just interacting with the vacuum. And it, the speed it happens to travel at is about 300,000 kilometres a second. Mm-hmm. In glass, there's lots of electrons in there, mostly it's electrons it interacts with, and that slows it down. And so the wave still carries on, but maybe sort of 200,000 kilometres a second, 150,000 kilometres a second, so really fast, but significantly slower. It's actually this slowing down, which causes refraction so the bending of light when it enters a substance. So if you ever looked at a pencil in a glass of water, it looks bent, yeah. and that's because light is bending when it enters and leaving, leaves the water because it's speeding up and slowing down. And then when it leaves again, it's, there's no electrons to interact with again, it's just interacting with the vacuum, and it carries on the speed of light in a vacuum, so it carries on at 300,000 kilometres a hmm. second.
1: All right, well, on the Twitter page, and the, what's the address of your Twitter page? Is it just um, Naked Scientists? Naked
2: Scientists. yeah. At-
1: Naked scientist. Um, Alfie Stopani, <laughs> um, why do onions make your eyes water?
2: Very good question. I suffer from this horribly. I hate cutting onions. Inside the onion, there's basically organic acids. That's so-called sulfenic acids. That kind of big, complicated organic molecule. And when the onions cut open and cells are damaged, it reacts um, with an enzyme to create a gas called ethyl S-oxide if it right, makes yeah. it good which evaporates from the onion it gets into your eyes and it triggers sensory neurons like pain and just basically creates pain directly to the pain sensors I'm guessing it's evolved as a way of protecting the onion from being eaten by animals because onions have got lots and lots of lovely sugar in them and if it wasn't for these all these sort of defence mechanisms then would come and eat them But because they can cause pain to the animals which try and do so they probably will go and eat the tomato instead
1: let's go to the phones now because uh, it's time to uh, have a phone question we've got Mark on the line hello Mark hello Sue yeah. what's your question
0: uh, question is Dr Dave I remember you were saying that the moon was part of the earth at one time there was a massive impact yep. and it got blasted off um, why is it not just a fragment? And why do the planets that we see are such these beautiful spheres that we see? Like, I, I mean, we know yeah. that we've got mountains and lakes. And but I mean,
2: even com- even considering that, if you co- the Earth is actually if, if you scaled the Earth down to the size of a um, billiard ball or a snooker ball, it would actually be smoother than the snooker ball. Cool. So yeah. what we think are giant mountains compared to the size of the Earth are absolutely mm. tiny. It's also with gravity because mm. every every object with mass attracts every other object with mass and the bigger it is, the stronger these forces get. And so if you imagine if the Earth was made out of water, all the water is going to kind of attempt to get as close to the other water as possible yeah. and the shape which does that best is a sphere. So the water would flow until mm-hmm. it created a sphere. Now, although to you and me a rock looks like a very hard thing, especially if you heat it up a bit, actually it's quite, it will flow. So over millions of years, rocks will flow, especially if they're hot. And so the mantle below the crust of the earth, which is only up to 20 or 30 kilometres thick, below that, the mantle, although you could hit it with a hammer, but if you leave it a million years, it will flow um, very, very slowly. So if you build a big pile, if you put a load of ice on Scandinavia, for example, the earth is actually deformed and it's sort of the mantle flows out of the way. Now, since the ice age, all that ice has melted, all the uh, mantle is flying back in to take that space where all the ice had pushed it down. And so Scandinavia uh, and skies and down in southern England were sinking very slowly because of this effect. And so when the moon was created, there was this huge impact. You got lots of incredibly hot rock spraying out. it's it, I think it fairly quickly accumulated into one big lump because it was essentially molten. It kind of then flowed as close to the other rock as it could get, which is a sphere. The means of sphere.
1: All right, bye thanks, bye, Mark. Bye bye, bye bye, Dr. Dave. Bye, bye bye, bye bye. Right, our next question uh, also comes through, well, via Twitter actually. Um, if you compress anything enough, will it become a solid? That's from Diving Duncan.
2: As far as I know, yes. The least, the thing which I'd be least expect to become a solid and doesn't even become a solid if you cool it down to absolute zero, so minus 273.17 degrees centigrade is helium. But if you apply enough pressure even to helium, It does turn to a solid, basically because if you've got a load of atoms or molecules, if you push on them, if you keep pushing them together, they've got to get closer and closer together. And eventually with enough pressure, they just bash into, they lock into each other and they can't move past one another. The forces required are too big and they do essentially form a solid. So I think the simple answer is yes, although the pressures required are absolutely immense.
1: Let's go this time to uh, Mike in Colchester who says, hi Jean, I am flying to Singapore soon how lucky you are um, how on earth did they get all those toilets uh, to work and where does all the waste go? Dave?
2: Um, I think certainly originally the toilets in planes used to dump it out of the back of the plane um, because carrying liquid around was expensive and they hoped they didn't hit anyone underneath but I think now that millions and millions of people are flying around in planes essentially they have Big tanks in the aeroplane. The tanks are kept at the same pressure as outside. Mm-hmm. So, if you ever flushed a toilet in a plane, you'll notice there's a very violent sucking noise. It's because the tank, um, waste tank, is at the air pressure outside, you're at 30,000 feet. So, when you open the valve, air rushes very quickly through the valve into the waste tank taking all the deposits with it very quickly and to save weight of course they use very little liquids but yeah i mean, basically it all just goes into a tank which doesn't actually increase the total weight of the plane of course because it's only stuff which was inside you to start with so as the tank gets heavier, you get lighter and then when they get to an airport they empty it
1: right we always get down to um the nitty-gritty of things um, a little note here from mike dave is it an urban myth that if you press the flush button on an airplane toilet while sitting on the loo this vacuum effect has the power to make
2: you stick to the seat the pressure difference if it was sealed could certainly stick you to the seat i mean you're probably talking about half an atmosphere which is actually really quite a large pressure but the problem is sleeping really well i think you it'd be be unlikely to be able to get a really good seal all the way around the seat and of course the the seat is up over the top of the bowl so there's a gap between the seat and the bowl yeah so there's always going to be a gap there so air can always get in there so you might be attracted to the seat but you're not actually going to seal anything so you're probably going to be all right
1: lovely thank you very much All right, let's go to this one here. Graham Hamilton says, um, When charging an electric toothbrush or mobile phone, when the device is fully charged, does it stop using electricity? In other words, is it okay or wasteful to leave it
2: plugged in permanently, please? They go all hot, don't they? Dave. It will slightly depend on the type of your charger. It will certainly waste some energy, especially the older, just straight heavy ones, which are actually just a straight transformer in there. Mm -hmm. They'll waste sort of less than a watt, sort of half a third of a watt. They'll use less power than if they were charging your phone, but they will waste a little bit of power. The more modern ones waste less, but again will waste a certain amount. But as Professor Mackay, um, David Mackay, who's uh, at the university, he did some experiments on this, and he got like about 16 chargers and put them all all in at once and plug them into the wall. And it still was less than a watt. And essentially, if you've got a certain amount of effort you're going to use in um, attempting to reduce your energy use, use the effort which you would have been spent turning off your phone chargers and use it to walk to the shops once rather than driving, and you'll save far more energy. <laughs>
1: Let's go to the phones and say a very good evening to Robin. Hello, Robin. Hello. What's your question?
2: I've got a collection of shells. Most of them are very thick-skinned. Mm. And yeah. I wonder if this was because of the great depths and the pressure of water, rather like a submarine. Yeah, you've got a huge amount of water above, your head, above its head or above its shell, so it's applying a huge pressure onto the shell. I don't think that's a major effect because, apart from anything else, the shells are essentially open at one end, most of them, and that's just filled with kind of soft, squishy bits. And so, the large pressure, all the large pressure is going to do is slightly compress the body of the creature, which will compress all the way through the shell. And so, basically, the pressure inside the shell will be exactly the same as outside, or very close to the same as outside. It's a a bit like if you go scuba diving, if you attempt to breathe even just two metres underwater through a pipe up to the atmosphere so your lungs are full of atmospheric pressure air, it's incredibly difficult to breathe because you're attempting to breathe in against the pressure of the water. But if you go scuba diving, because the air you're breathing in is pressurised, the pressure on the inside of your lungs is exactly the same as outside, so you can go down tens of metres as long as the pressure is equalised between the two. I think the reason why the creatures have such strong shells is to resist other creatures trying to eat them. And if you've got a really big, thick, strong shell, creatures which you've got to eat, you've got to be much bigger and much rarer.
1: How's that, Robin? Thank you. You're very welcome. Now, Andy in Huntingdon says, can you explain how a night sight for a pair of binoculars works?
2: There's various different ways of doing them, but uh, I'm guessing you talking about the image intensifiers. Normally these look sort of green. Mm-hmm. There's, again, various technologies on these. The slightly older-fashioned ones, which are normally green, they work by... I basically you have a um, camera type arrangement which projects light onto a screen yep this screen is made out of a metal something like sodium which electrons can escape very easily from and behind that screen you've got a vacuum or a very low pressure gas um, with about a thousand volts across it to another screen at the back So when the light hits the front screen, um, it knocks a few electrons off. Those electrons fly up this huge voltage towards the other screen. As they do it, they bash into a few gas molecules, knocking off more electrons. So one electron knocked off at the front turns into maybe a 1,000 at the back. They're moving really quite fast. They've got lots of energy. Then they hit the screen at the back, and then that hits a phosphor, like in the front of your TV. So so the electrons hit, or in front of an old TV, Mm -hmm. the electrons hit the phosphor, create lots of light. So maybe one photon coming in could make a 1,000 or 2,000 photons coming out. And so it's a 1,000 times brighter, so you can see it only on, in starlight. The more modern ones, which the US military are using, basically just have a very, very sensitive camera because you can make um, CCD cameras like in a, a digital camera sensitive enough to work under just starlight. There are also other versions which, um, instead of working on visible light and near-infrared light like all those do, they work on thermal infrared. So these are thermal imaging cameras you sometimes see on helicopters. And this is the far infrared, the thermal infrared, and anything at room temperature is glowing in this kind of light. So we'd be glowing really brightly, especially Mm. if you're hot. And so you can see anyone who is warm, any warm vehicles, just show up really brightly even at night because they're glowing, whatever the, the amount of light. Interesting stuff.
1: Um, Andy has uh, sent an email in saying Would it be possible or beneficial to make a liquid crystal display touchscreen keyboard?
2: So I think, yeah, I think he's wanting to make a keyboard, which is really easy to clean. So you just get a kind of essentially yeah. something very like a, yeah. a modern phone touch yeah, I think he's suggesting you make a really nice, easy um, wipe screen keyboard. And you just sort of you know, make an LCD so you can see all the keys and you can type on them. In fact, very like the, the keyboards you get on sort of mobile phones and um, things like that. Um, and tablet PCs have tablet mm-hmm. computers. Yes, it works. I mean, it works on a modern a smartphone. It's just quite difficult to type on. Because the advantage of a real keyboard is you can find the keys with your fingers yes. so you know where all the keys yes. are. And so you um, you can type very quickly, and it's a bit like playing a piano. You, you can kind of learn where all the keys are. Yeah, whereas I think with a um, LCD sort of keyboard like you get on phones, like mm. I certainly have to spend a lot of time looking at it to work out where the keys are because you can't feel them. So it's a lot slower. So you certainly could, and they are used, but I think it's disadvantages with it.
1: Hmm. All right. And Mike in Colchester has said, is Dr. Dave's brain, is it the same size as it would have been 500 years ago?
2: Yeah, obviously my brain is an awful lot bigger than it was 500 years ago because I didn't exist. But that's a rather stupid answer to the question. Have people's brains changed the last 500 years? I don't think so significantly. Possibly they're slightly bigger than they were, not really because of any genetic changes but just because we're fed a lot better in the same way that people have got taller in the last 50 or 60 years because we're getting a lot better nutrition if anything's slightly too good nutrition so we're growing as big as our genes will let us rather than being stunted because I mean a lot of people 50, 100 years ago were the reason why they were a lot shorter was because they just weren't getting enough food and they stunted their growth and I wouldn't be surprised if that had a similar effect on the brain but I, I don't know any particular effect
1: Now, uh, Dominic uh, P6 has said, if you go the speed of light around the world for a day, a week goes by on Earth. Would people on Earth see you at a
2: seventh of that speed? Um, I think the way the universe seems to work is that if anybody going at any speed anywhere in the universe looks at a beam of light they see it as going at the speed of light, so at 300,000 kilometers a second. Mm-hmm. So even if two people are traveling at a million miles an hour relative to one another, or a million kilometers a second relative to one another, they both see the light beam traveling between them going at exactly the same speed. Everything else changes to make that work, so time changes. So it was a time dilation effect he was talking about, and space gets distorted, and everything else changes, but the speed of light always appears the same. It's absolutely bonkers.
1: Yeah, it's lost me. All the experiments
2: me. that anyone has done. <laughs> I mean, the, the, it's just kind of, a, as far as we know, that's just a, a fact of the universe that the speed of light is always constant and everything else seems to change to make up for that. If you're actually going at the speed of light, time dilation is actually infinite, so no time passes for you if you were going at the speed of light. And so if you're going at the speed of light around the Earth for a, for what appeared like a week to everyone else, yeah. to you it would appear instantaneous. Hmm bizarre.
1: Uh, Ray and Whitam. is it possible to dig a hole from this country to Australia through the earth and if so how long would it
2: take? That'll keep you busy Dave? I I think theoretically if you're talking completely simple physics there's no no fundamental physical reason why you couldn't there's a huge number of practical reasons why you couldn't. The I mean, the big problem, as I was saying earlier, is that when you get to great depths, you get to go into the mantle. Whilst it kind of seems solid if you hit it with a hammer, um, the rocks will flow. They're also at an immense temperature that's sort of thousands of degrees centigrade. But the biggest problem is that the pressures are completely ridiculous. The pressure at the bottom of the ocean is very, very large. Mm. But because the density of the earth is about five times that of water on average, every time you go down two meters, the pressure will increase by an atmosphere so if you go down a kilometre the pressure is going to be um, if you go down a kilometre 500 atmospheres if you go down 10 kilometres 5,000 atmospheres 100 kilometres 50,000 atmospheres and building a tunnel which could support those kind of pressures and those temperatures would be just incredibly difficult and obscenely expensive and fundamentally it's a lot easier and cheaper to fly
1: Um, Pretty has said,
2: why can't we light a 100-watt bulb with a 1.5 battery? 1.5-volt battery, yeah. Yeah. Sort of a normal uh, battery. If you plug that into a 100-watt bulb, why doesn't it work? There's a variety of reasons for this. The first one is that a 100-watt bulb is designed to work at 240 volts. Mm Mm-hmm. So for it to produce 100 watts of power, you have to connect it to a power supply, which is pushing electricity through with a measure of how hard the pressure of electricity is volts, with a pressure of about 240 volts. Um, If you connect a 1.5-volt battery to, to that, the current which goes through it is going to be about 150th 130th of what you would get from the proper light bulb and the power given out is going to be that 130th squared so the 10,000th so it doesn't get nearly hot enough to light up mm-hmm. the second question is could you design a different 100 watt bulb to connect to a power off a 1.5 volt battery If you had a really, really big 1.5 battery and you connected hundreds and hundreds of 1.5 volt batteries in parallel and you had a very, very low resistance light bulb, you could put 100 watts, you'd have to put through about 60 amps of electricity um, at 1.5 volts and you could produce a 100 watt light bulb it would be kind of difficult and 60 amps is an awful lot of current you need huge copper wires going into it and it'd be very difficult but it would be possible could you do it with a just a single 1.5 volt battery the answer is no because there's too much resistance in one of those batteries and the maximum current they can probably produce is 5 10 amps not a couple of hundred so you could just couldn't get enough power out of a small battery
1: One here that um, has uh, come through from Michael in Kings Lynn. And I don't know whether Dave, whether you're going to know this or not, but um, he says, if a person was born blind, as they grow up, can people get through to them what seeing is?
2: I don't know. I guess you'd have to ask someone who's blind. Mm. There have been some interesting cases of people who were blind all their life then the reason why they were blind could be surgically removed. Mm. So if for some reason they had some kind of skin layer inside their eye and someone could mm. remove it, all of a sudden they could see. Mm. Then their the eyes work and they get the signals to their brain. And actually it's incredibly, incredibly confusing because when we're young we learn how to see and we learn how objects relate to one another and we know what it means for an object to be in front of one another. Um, And we learn how to recognize faces, and there's a huge number of things which we learn when we're very young. Mm. And they're kind of hard-coded in, and we don't have to think about them at all. There's quite a famous story, I can't remember the person involved, Mm. who had this done to him. In fact, the the guy studying was quite a, a famous psychologist called Richard Gregory. He'd been blind all his life, and he couldn't understand what he was seeing unless he could feel it. Yeah. So he was fascinated with making things and he went to see a lathe because he'd never really, never seen a lathe, he never quite understood how it goes together. Mm. And he, when he went and look, just looked at it, all he could see was kind of a, a load of different areas of light and dark and shade mm. and lots of lines and he couldn't put it all together as an object in his brain mm. until he felt it Then he could kind of relate the pictures he was seeing to the model in his head. Yeah. of what a lathe was, and so you yeah. could put it all together. So I think from that, seeing as, as people who actually can see after not having seen when they were kids, find it very difficult to see, I think just explaining it to them would be very, very difficult. Um, what happens to a particle of light as
1: it's leaving the sun? Why does it take so long to do this? This is from uh, Texas
2: Elephant. I think this is this the story that it takes about a million years for yes. light to get out of as the, the center of the sun
1: yeah, um, it goes back to uh, from Fort Worth in Texas said you said on, on the show that it takes a million years for a particle of light to exit the sun. What is it doing for that million years, and why does it take so long, and how do you know this to be true? How do you know, Dr. Dave? Come on.
2: Okay, I mean, people haven't gone and followed a particle of light all the way out of the sun because we haven't been thinking about those kind of questions for a million years apart from anything else and we can't get into the sun and there's all sorts of reasons. So it's out of a whole lot of modelling. And it's not strictly the same particle of light which is taking a million years to get out of the sun. Mm. So what the result of that, what the calculation which someone has done to get that figure is that If you produce some light in the centre of the sun, it will fly a certain distance and it will hit an atom or probably an electron inside the sun. It will get absorbed by the electron and then possibly bounced off or re-emitted in another direction. And so this light can only travel micrometres before it hits another electron and bounces off. Mm. And so it's going to sort of take this what's called a random walk. It will bounce around the sun at random. Mm-hmm. and if you imagine that, that it was the same um, particle of light in fact it's probably got absorbed and re-emitted it billions of times in this period if yeah. it was all just one particle of light and it was bouncing around the distance it would travel would be a million light years before yeah. it actually got out to the surface of the sun and that's a kind of strange calculation but it's actually very important for measuring how long it takes for something to change in the centre of the sun to get out to the outside so if the core of the sun got a bit hotter how long would it take for the heat to get out to the surface of the and that's basically how long would it take for light, because of light's the way that most of the energy is transported around the sun, to get out to the surface. And that's about a million years.
1: Hmm. All right, we've got time for one more question. And uh, that has come in by um, email again. And this is from um, Michael Hunter, who says, Does a magnetic field require energy? And if so, where does
2: that energy come from? Interesting question. For a magnetic field to keep on going, you don't need any energy at all. But to create the magnetic field, then you do need energy. So, for example, in a lump of iron, there's lots and lots of little magnets in there. Each of the atoms is a tiny magnet, and they form into little domains. And normally in a lump of iron, they're all pointing in random directions. But to create a large magnetic field, you've got to line those all up and stop them pointing in random directions. Mm-hmm. And that does take quite a lot of energy. In the case of a, a magnet, you do it—you put that energy in by using an external magnet. So you either get a permanent magnet and push it towards the iron, mm-hmm. which will uh, take you away from the iron, which takes some energy... Or you have to apply an electromagnet, which again uses some energy. And so creating the magnetic field uses energy, but once it's created, it doesn't use any energy to keep it going.
1: That's it for this week.